Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'm Levy Dalton, and this is All Drink to That, where we get behind the scenes of the wine business. Chris Barnes is on the show today. Chris has had a long career in retail at Chamber Street Wines, but now he's off on his own working with Jose Pastor as a national sales manager. Suertes del Marquez. You did that quite well. Yes. Well, I was saying it to this Colombian guy. I was like, Suertes del Marquez. And he's like, huh, what? I'm like, Suertes del Marquez. He's like, oh, you mean Suertes del Marquez. <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. It's there like are accents over the end. It's just that going to I'm, Monforte and asking for Conterno, and they're like, "Oh, you mean Conterno?" <laughs> like, oh, great. Okay, it was that different, was it? Yeah, yeah. So this is the Siete Fuentes uh, new project that we love. A whole cluster and concrete tanks and foot trod and shit like that. And it's from the Canary, from the Canary Islands, Tenerife. You're making the birds sing over there, are you? Well, the Canary Islands are not named after birds. I did not know that. What are they named after? There's a dude named Car- Canary that walked around the earth? No, the, the Greeks, when they showed up to the islands and they're Boats. exploring, going to the end of the world, uh-huh, uh-huh. They, they found the Canaries and they found uh, the islands were overrun with wild dogs. Oh, I did not know that. Yes. And I once wrote an email at Chamber does, Street. I don't read your emails. The typo was... <laughs> The typo was wild dongs. Oh, really? Yes. And there were wild dongs everywhere. <laughs> Did that gain a big response? Yes, I got a lot of it? emails back. <laughs> and I didn't sell a lot of wine that time. <laughs> right, right. I don't know. The terroir is really coming through in the glass. Yeah, The yeah. dong. So, so the Greeks, they named it after the, the dogs, the can- canarius. I didn't know there, there was a can- Oh, canar- oh canarius. Canarius, canine. Got yeah, sure. And so in terms of the wine, what's that about? What's that about? Uh, Lisan Negro, um, mostly, which is the sort of the workhorse grape on the island. They make, they work a lot with carbonic maceration there. So, it's the workhorse um, dong on the, on the, work, <laughs> the workhorse dong is Lisan Negro with uh, a little bit of Tentilla. Oh, okay. Which is, uh, called Graciano in Rioja. Yeah, sure. And sort of, uh, made its way here. Um, very fragrant. Yeah, that's the wines from the Canaries. I mean, they're 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 fragrant. They have lush kind of high tone fruit, sort of moderate moderate acidity, but they're still zesty. I know? feel like peeps who liked Norello would like this, like from Etna. Sure, yeah. I find the Canary wines have less of the tannic grip. They don't. Mm-hmm. I don't. They don't do long maceration. You know that kind of thing here. Yeah. That's it's whole clusters at the bottom of the tank with whatever's not distemmed at the top, and then they do foot pijage and it. Carbonic a little bit, so they get You're gonna work a little carbonic. Using words like pijage this early in the morning. Oh well, I mean, I'm always in that mode <laughs> since I sell this wine. You know, it's uh... when you go to Starbucks, or you, you know, do you use the actual terms for it? You're like, I want a venti. There's a divide between I do it because you know when I go to Starbucks, it's like when I go to Starbucks, I'm like, you know, I would. I worked in coffee shops for a long time. Yeah, right, right, right. So you're like, let me show you how it's done over there. Yeah, so it's like when they would come to my coffee shop and order the venti or the grande, right. I'd get 
subtly disgusted. Right, my, right. My face would change a little bit. Sure. And, you know, yeah. whatever. Where do you think I'm you like, are? I'm like, actually, the sizes are up here, you know? And <laughs> you did like the Dana, they're like, they're like, Dana Carvey oh, thing. Oh, oh, <laughs> sorry. Um, yes, uh, tall. Like, we still don't have tall, actually, that says small. You know, um, so. Oh, I was hoping you had your own nomenclature. You're like X, X, I, X. That would be funny. I think that would be funny. That that could be a future in coffee shops in New York. Just how did you get involved in the old barista business? Uh, actually, you know, I was like working in kitchens when I was young, and I as I worked a, some pretty tough worked some pretty tough kitchens when I was in Portland, like really high volume places, places where if you had you wanted to learn something, yeah, you had to really like work hard to learn something because no cook was teaching you anything right you know osmosis you're just I, supposed to pick it up yeah and i kind of thought that kitchens were just kind of brutal and my, my chef dreams were kind of shattered at a certain moment and i was in chicago and i was thinking i moved to chicago uh with a friend and i was thinking you know i wanted bigger bigger city bigger better things but i was kind of burned out in line cooking so mm-hmm. i was thinking oh, i'll go work at a you know i'll work f- just do catering or prep work because I love prep work, actually. I love mm-hmm. just like, I love knife work. The zen of it? I love it, yeah. Just kind of fall into that mode? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I could probably be like a sushi bar guy because mm-hmm. I just love like precision cuts and doing that kind of stuff. But at the time, I was sort of applying around Chicago. Chicago's really big. It's big. It's sort of disparate. It's like the other side of the tracks is like, mm-hmm. it's a thing there, you know? Mm-hmm. So at the time, I was just trying to learn about Chicago and I'm, I'm thinking, I'm like, oh, I'll apply to this like Whole Foods. I'll do it for a little bit. And so I'm sitting there in a coffee shop and I'm I'm like, oh, I'll just, I'll fill out an application here. I always have respect for this coffee. And uh, they're like the first, first first people to call me back. So And this was like Pete's? Pete's. I was working at Pete's uh, Coffee and that was a great company at the time. How did that all roll down? I mean, what was your job for them? Uh, I trained, I, I worked up my way up really quick because... Uh, they were like, taste the tea, talk about it, taste the coffee, taste about, talk about it. And I was like, wait a minute, what? Like human, like talk, think, you know, this sort of approach was totally new to me. I didn't ever work around customers before that. Oh, okay. So you're like, hey, this guy's not yelling at me. He seems nice. Yeah, exactly. Pick up, motherfucker. Exactly. And you know. they had these pe- They had these customers that were just absolute fanatics. Really? Like, about coffee? About that coffee. Was about it the that first coffee? You know, it's like dark, that... deep roasted coffee, but that still had like a sense of place. Like the Ethiopia didn't taste like the Kenya. Didn't taste like the 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 blend that didn't taste like the other blend. And I thought, like, wow, this is really artisan. You know, it's hand roasted, all that kind of stuff, and. I thought it was great for me. What year was time. that? That was 2001. Was it? So it was right after right after 9-11, I moved from Portland. Like my last day at my last cooking job there was 9-11. So pretty wild. So you're, you're doing the coffee thing. You're verbalizing about product to people. Yeah, yeah. And that, that sort of, that resonated with me. As a trainer though, more like to staff. Yeah, I became, I became like the guy that trained the staff and became became kind of tyrannical and maniacal about tasting and knowing the product. And, you know, we, the tea program was actually the kind of the secret there. I mean, there was a lot more tea to learn than coffee, and I got really into that, and I still have a great love for tea. And, uh, yeah, I, I trained the baristas too because my, my, line, my line cooking background worked well with just, like, making things fast mm-hmm. and perfect. Like, I could do that. And... So I was kind of, you know, it was I was feeling it back then, you know. And how did the uh, switch to the old wine side come about? That came about I I took a job. I left Pete's because I thought that I might want to be a coffee roaster, and I wanted to go try to work for a local company and see if that was possible, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so I, I worked for about eight months at Intelligentsia, and I realized that the company was just. It was different. My head space was maybe different than where they were. And, you know, it's like, well, I'll get a restaurant job on the side, work here a little bit more part-time, even though I was doing tea and coffee training for them as well in that in my store. That's what they hired me to do. Um, but the store itself was, it was, a, it was a machine. 
it was a factory. You know, lot I call it the latte art factory. You know, just relentless line to the door. And I'm like, I'm not going to be able to educate about coffee and tea in this environment. Uh, so, and there was really no other place for me to go at that time. I had, I wasn't prepared to earn my stripes and stay for a couple, two, three, four years there to sort of get the attention of the powers that be and that would potentially move me up the ladder. So I started working in a restaurant in, uh, in the South Loop in Chicago uh, as a back waiter because they had a, they, they had a wine education program. I started reading about wine just thinking that, man, if I could do this coffee and tea thing, I have a background in food, I bet you I could learn about wine. Mm-hmm. That was just sort of my reasoning. Um, people seem to be having fun doing that, uh, that, that kind of job. I, I, I knew people in the business, like people who worked like cream wines and like sort of distributors would mm-hmm. come in, they'd be in between appointments and they'd come in and, you know, have their espressos and whatnot. And I talked to them and sort of, you know, thought like the wine guys were cool and worked in a restaurant for a while. Um, met a guy that ended up being on Top Chef, uh, Dale Talde was the chef de cuisine at the time, and we became oh, yeah, I know that guy. we became really close buddies in Chicago, and just sort of got me back into food, uh-huh. you know. And that job sort of led me to to go look for uh, a job in a wine shop. Oh, okay. In Chicago, um, I ended up working at a a fancy food store called Fox and Obel, which had a really good wine program in the sense that you could learn all the varieties. Grape varieties, you you know, you learn top producers. They were pretty much like top producers and grape varieties. They had, you know, it was great. And I, I got put on a little wine education program through the wine director there. And I read, just I just started reading books and, you know, it was like Protatory Nebbiolo, like, was $20. And I'm like, this is in my budget. Yeah. And I love this, you know. So you were hitting benchmarks, like in terms of your knowledge. Yep, yep, yep. Exactly. Um, you know, Gruner Veltliner just came around at that time, and I just remember liking like the Domain Vacao was like twelve ninety nine or right. something or eleven ninety nine. I was value. like, man, this is like a good wine that's different than Sauvignon Blanc and all the grapes they tell Chardonnay. you are the the benchmark grapes. It's just like fun to l- learn. So, how did you roll to New York? Uh, Sort of wanting a little bit more and seeing Chicago is seeing Chicago is maybe not like the city that I really wanted to live in forever. And um You're blaming the Cubs. Is that what you're doing? You're blaming the Cubs. No, the sports teams I'm still I'm still a fan. Oh yeah, you're still Yeah, not not baseball, not baseball. No, I like I'm a Bulls fan. Um basketball fan. But um no, in New York was just I, I, I visited there actually. I went I came to New York with and met up with Dale Talde actually. Yeah. And we spent four days here eating and drinking around. I saved him a little bit of money, came here, checked out a couple culinary schools, just thinking like this would be my ticket out of here. Was he working at Budokan at the time? He hadn't gotten the job yet. He hadn't got the job yet. Um that that was no, his next step actually was Morimoto as sous chef. Um, but, you know, I ate at John George. We ate at Balthazar when it was, like, really fun. And, you know, um, I fell in love with New York. It was, like, four days of, like, insane weather in June, just, like, perfect. And, like, it was so vibrant. And I'm like, I got to come here. Mm-hmm. So I I got into French Culinary Institute. And I'm like, you know what? Now's the time to just do something with food and just give it all my, you know, give it, whatever I got and see how it goes. Um, but I was still into wine, you know. So I, I kept my options open. I said, well, if I do culinary school, this could lead, and I'm still studying wine, this could be, they could some, they you, come together at some point. Yeah, you could be a restaurateur. Yeah, like restaurateur. Chef, or, yeah, yeah. Teach classes, keep, you know, do different things. I mean, yeah, you know, food and wine pairing, whatever. It could be private parties, you know. I, th- I saw like an open world if I kept, if I diversified. So somehow you rolled into August? I uh, I was in school and I started staging around. Um, I staged with Andrew Carmelini, which was an amazing experience. What did you uh, take from that? He sat down and talked to me for a half an hour about being a cook. Yeah. It's like, 
blown away by this. I'm like, you just won the James Beard, I think, Northeast the year before that, you know, at Cafe Blue, and he started a voce, and I was staging at a voce. But I took away from that, just like, you're the, you're, he's, an o, he's kind of an OG, in uh-huh. a sense, you know? he. What did he tell you about being a cook? He's like, he's just telling me about, like, when he first started in New York, there were four or five restaurants, there were a, a certain group of chefs that you had to work for, and that was the way it was, and now the food thing is really expanding. It just gave me a lot to chew on and think about, you know, is what I want to do for the future. I mean. So he gave you the big brother talk. Like he sat down amazing. with you like a bro. Like it was amazing. I'm a stage. Yeah. You know. Um, so my next place I staged was August. With Tony Liu or? Tony Liu. Tony Liu. Yeah. And I just, I got the just best vibe from that guy. Um, he was like actually Andrew Carmelini is talking with his cooks a lot, you know, just communicating a lot about the food. His food was absolutely delicious at the time. Um, coming, everything was coming out of the wood fire oven, the cold grill. And I thought, you know, the job opening actually for me fit perfect with culinary school, which was at night. And my job was daytime, the daytime cook. You know, I was in charge of sort of the prep kitchen and, and doing lunch and I'm like, well, I'm going to French Culinary Institute at night. This is where I get all my technique. And during the day, I I cook like caveman, you know, mm-hmm, put it on mm-hmm. the grill, put it in the wood fire oven. I thought that was just like a cool mix of things. Um, but I, I knew that I had plans to expand my schooling in the first part of the year. So I was a little like, what am I going to do then? And sort of that led me to work at August for about six months and then take a hiatus and with a plan to come back, but uh, sort of wine got in the way. But, I mean, so at that time, what were you drinking? Well, um, I wasn't drinking a lot uh, because I was working my tail off uh, seven in the morning in the prep kitchen, maybe earlier actually, till 11 o'clock at night. that was my schedule, but I got a shift drink, and I always took my shift drink before I would go off to culinary school. And we used to have Coudere Fleury, I think it was 2005, by the glass. Royette. The Clota Royette. Nice. And uh, I was very friendly with the wine buyer there, Ryan Ibsen, and I just drank this wine every day. I tried other wines by the glass, but I something about that wine... I loved it. I mean, it was savory. It was aromatic. had great acidity. It went with the kind of food I like to eat. Um, and that back label, you know, had that Louis Dresner back label. and The Testament. Yeah. Um, you know, sort of, I, I, I think I tried another Louis Dresner wine somewhere else. I think it was Royal Ali, Vera Classe, and, and uh, I was like, Something I, I'm I pay attention. Uh-huh. I pay attention. You know, I used to before that I used to follow cheap Rosenthal wines. It was Deforville, Barbera, and Montpertuis when I was a barista because mm-hmm. I could afford those. They were mm-hmm. like ten dollars, you know, back then. So I, you know, I was kind of putting it together in my brain, like slowly, that maybe these are these are some. This is something I want to pursue. And Ryan recommended that I go down to Chamber Street Wines to to uh, go to their tastings. Oh, okay. Like on Saturdays? Fridays and Saturdays. And, uh, you know, he was saying that he had, he had wanted to work there, but he was coming from sommelier jobs and it wasn't, didn't exactly work for him. But like that, they didn't pay enough is what that means. Well, you know, retail's different than, yeah, it's different than restaurants, mm-hmm. you know, it's... Um, you know, uh, so I did that actually, because I sort of, when people give me, when people give me recommendations, when they, when, you know, they sort of pave the way for that, I I go because it's doing it for a reason, you know, I'm not, so I, I went to Chamber Street Tastings, um, when I get out of school and, um, they were totally, completely, complete eye openers for me. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, who was pouring? Well, uh, the first time I went, actually, 
I walked in and they're in the old firehouse and there was this quite large older gentleman uh, with glasses pouring and he had this pouring this rickety old table and he was pouring the white wines and in the back there was some red wines. It was Joe Dresner in the front. And uh, I tasted through his table and I was like, man, these wines are just, they're amazing. And there's that Roa Ali, Vera Classe that I, that I knew about. And I went to the back and there was that Coudere and there was like, and Denise was pouring Baudry and these different things. And I, I just, for some reason before that, outside of the Protatori Nebbiolo and some random Italian wines I had, I had tried and the couple Rosenthal wines, I still was under the impression that wine was fermented grapes with like oak spice, you know, mm-hmm. like um, I didn't really know enough. Like know. how much oak does this have was the right, question. Right, right. Those were the old questions. Like it was like, well, what's the influence of the oak in this wine? And On this Cabernet or right. Merlot, but probably nothing else. Yeah, exactly. And uh, that tasting was just like, Blew my blew my mind. So I, I go back up front after I taste all the wines, and I told Joe I wanted to taste uh, Kazan Cor Chevrony again because I'm like I can afford that wine, and it had no other, it had a flavor profile that I had never experienced. And he's like, No, no, you know this is not cocktail. Oh yeah, this is not a cocktail. He just shut hour. you down. Yeah, yeah. He's, he shut me down. I'm like, Yeah, but you know these wines, they're, they're like, I got all kind of. Uh, emotional about it yeah. but these wines are so amazing and they're so different than any other wines I've ever tasted before he goes yeah 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 you don't know anything <laughs> and this I was tastes like, like every other romorantin I've ever uh... what is up with this guy like why is he treating me like this you know yeah. um, but needless to say I was hooked you know um, I'm from a town where people just abuse each other on a on a daily basis that's how we talk to each other playing a dozens and you know, I could handle Joe in that in that respect. So I kept fo- I, I followed Chamber Street tastings after that. I went to every every one I possibly could, which culminated with the big grower tasting that they oh a big one yeah yeah and it happens in March. It's mobbed um, always. It's like <laughs> well they used to the first year I went it was in the old store, and there was Pierre Breton, there was Juan Mar- uh, uh, the Marichal, Cloud Marichal, mm-hmm. and. It, is, it was an 05 vintage, so it was like a good vintage for me to get involved with because it was like a ripe mm-hmm. vintage. Wines had a lot of structure. I remember like Le Grange was just like mind-blowing that year, so I could afford that. And yeah, I just like vigneron. Wait, you guys grow the grapes, you make the wine, and you come to the States and you do all this. For me, I was that was the... For $18. Yeah. You know? This is non-exclusive club, like so. Anyways, um, culinary school sort of was coming to an end, and I was in a bar, um, in like a hipster bar in the East Village, and David Lilly's daughter Georgia was there. David Lilly, the owner of Chamber Street, right? And um, I was like, "You work at my favorite wine store." I went up to her, and she's like. Yeah, yeah. She's like, I, I think I recognize you. And I'm like, yeah, you know. I'm like, how do I get a job there? Oh, you didn't ask her for another taste of Cor Chevrony? You're like, how do I get another taste of Cor Chevrony? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. N- well, what did she that was, that's what I was scheming on. I was scheming on more of that. Kazin uh, <laughs> uh, for days. I got it in. <laughs> yeah, man. I Dude, when I got hired there, I was drinking Kazin. Like, that was the, my jam. But I mean, so she was just like, "Yeah, come and work." Which like, us. A- actually, uh, one of one of our employees is leaving, and you know, there's probably going to be an opening. I was like, "Really? Well, that doesn't happen very often." So I I went home, woke up in the morning as early as, or as early as I could, and I made my resume and brought it down. I did you include the part about getting dissed by Joe on there? Because that would be a definite in, I think. I've been dissed and scarred by Joe Dresner. Okay, you're hired. No, no, no. I didn't. I was very intimidated because um, I walked in and Georgia had gone upstairs to let David Lilly know that um, that I was there. And I guess she had kind of let him know that she had met 
I mean, the day before, which yeah. is awesome. I met this nice boy and he didn't throw up on my shoes. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, so I had an, kind of an interview. Um, How'd that go down? On the stairs. Yeah, with David? Yeah, with David. Standing on the stairs and me kind of just like looking up at him because the way it used to be in the old store is that the office were upstairs in the old firehouse and, you know, you'd have to run down if there was a customer and, and, you know, David sort of met me halfway and we sort of talked for about five minutes. Kind of a shame you didn't use the fireman's pole to do this interview. You know what I mean? (laughs) (laughs) Here, slide down and I'll talk to you real fast. I don't know why, you know... I'd I'd love to see Jamie and David sliding down a fire. That'd be, that'd be really interesting. So you're talking to David, and he's like, "What?" He's not really saying much. Yeah, you know, well, I'm like, "This the- is this not my this is not my idea of an interview." I'm thinking that I'm just meeting the guy for the first time, and he, he asked me like what some of my favorite wines were, and I was like, "Well, I'm kind of obsessed with the Lewis Dresner portfolio right now, mm-hmm. not knowing anything, not mm-hmm. knowing that like that was the end. Like, there was that a was connection, the magic. not like, knowing Abracadabra. that Abracadabra. Yeah, it was like Shazam, <laughs> you know? Uh, yeah. So I'm like, man, that interview went bad. So I, I left. How many I'm minutes like, were you talking to him? Five minutes, maybe. Yeah, and then he was like, okay, see you. Later. All right, okay. Uh, well, we'll let you know. Um, you know, I'm like, I definitely don't have enough experience to work in the store. Yeah. Is what I'm thinking. And I had done some customer service and um, I knew some stuff about wine, but I certainly didn't know enough to work there at the time. But I got called back to come back in and I thought it was for my first interview. Right. Like, oh, we're going to interview, you know. Yeah. And I came back and it was actually uh, my so-called second interview, which was come in the back and taste wine and with a supplier. Oh, okay. So you're just with hanging Jamie, with Jamie. With Jamie Wolf the cats. and uh, Lyle Fass and Tim Bowen and myself. What was that like? Phil Saray was there too. He was the planner. Oh, he was the poor? He was the planner rep, you know? And it was just like, Oh, this, you know, Lyle was projectile spitting from 10 Uh feet away. away. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And uh, uh, it was just basically like, okay, you're in. I'm like, what did I do to get this job? Uh, You know. And how long were you there? Well, total at Championship Wines? Yeah. Five and a half years. Okay. But, But David told me that I only had to stay for six months to get through the holiday season. We know that this is a stepping stone job and we don't expect you to stay for very long. He thought you were going to go back into restaurants for the big money. Yeah, or something like that. And um, I got a trip my first year there to Burgundy in Austria. And then I was like, wait, you travel? Okay. All right. Yeah, not bad. First year at Burgundy. Plus I loved it. It was was the time when it was was 05 Burgundies um, at the time we were selling and people were just Buying. Buying. Yeah. Buying. And this was before like natural wine was like a big, I thought it was before kind of natural wine was like a big kind of hip word to throw around. And it was just like a really good time to start there. And Who are you? You were traveling with David? I traveled with Jamie the first year. I went to Bartho, Monier Jabor, you know, Cellars and Burgundy were fantastic. Lafarge. uh, Special moments? Memorable, Uh, Memorable scenes? On the wine route? <laughs> no, you know, we, I had a great time with Jamie. I mean, Jamie's like one of the best people to travel with. He's uh-huh. like, he just, he loves it. And, and we ate a, we ate a good restaurants and, you know, I had my first bottle of Salos. Uh, I loved Austria, like as a place to like, you, you know, go sit at a, a picnic table. You know, a big a big picnic table, and they just send out many many courses, and uh, uh, just the food there was fantastic. And one of the things that always impressed me about Jamie and David is how much respect they have for the growers they visit, like how much they take it like very seriously to be respectful to them, as opposed to just showing up and like, hey, we're gonna taste for your stuff because we're cool. It's more like, hey, uh, you're cool, and we're gonna taste for your stuff. Oh, I mean, Jamie was it's quiet, attentive, attentive tasting. You know, we did five appointments a day. It was serious, serious stuff, you know. And uh, I loved it. It was great. 
what did you take from those guys overall? I mean, now that you've moved on, what are you thinking back? What do you think about what you took from David? What did you take from Jamie in terms of style? Uh, integrity, being fair, you know, that's what those guys embody that really, you know, having, having your taste and not compromising, you know, and just being, being transparent. You were a buyer for them for a while. So yeah. how did that work out in terms of having your own taste? Like, I mean, was there rules about what you could buy? Cause you know, or was it just like, Hey, you can't buy spoofulated wines, yeah. you, you know, uh, which you can't buy extracted, oaky, obvious uh, flavor bomb wines. You know, that's just not a place. There isn't a place for that in that wine shop. And, you know, when I got handed Spain and Portugal, that's what the name of the game was. Oh, okay. So you're buying Spain at the time that most Spanish reds are pretty big, modern. Big yeah. and modern. Um and for a store that isn't going to buy those, like isn't going to buy modern wine, no. And no. So you had to kind of figure that out. Yeah, like, I mean our Spanish I actually... our Spanish section was Lopez de Heredia, right? At the yeah. time that you took it over, They're yeah. Like, actually, and... I remember because at the old firehouse there used to be like three bottles at the top of the stairs. It was <laughs> like Muga Lopez. <laughs> you know, it's just a few things. You know, a, a value Rioja, Lopez de Heredia, and like I don't know, a couple other wines. And I remember they got that Ribera Sacra. Ribera Sacra. Yep. From uh, you know, the dude with from the, Demison, and it was like the first time I'd seen them add a Spanish wine along Vecina, right? By Vecina or Vetura, what was that? Diventura, 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 great wines. And it was like, oh, you're adding a Spanish red, hmm. like yeah. it was surprised me, you know, because I thought Spanish wine was big and big and bold too, you know, right? And Lyle, Lyle was the first person to write about those wines, is that true? Yes, and I was into them actually. For me at that time, it was like between. Sherry, Lopez de Heredia, and those wines particularly, some of those Galician wines, like I had enough to go on for me to take that job and kind of own it. Because it wasn't a huge part of the store, so you felt like comfortable grabbing it and then kind of building it slowly as opposed to right. being overwhelmed. Right. I mean, I, I didn't think I was going to be taking that category very seriously, but I thought I was going to try to do a good job with it. Which uh, by all accounts, I think you you did. I, I hope so. What were some I of mean, the... I I'm uh, a bit... You know, I'm. I can be a bit dogmatic uh, about the way I buy, which I'm sure suppliers loved. Did that like carry through to sales on the floor, though? I mean, I mean, if you're buying exactly what you like, were you mm -hmm. able to then sell what, exactly what you like? Yeah, yeah. And, and well, how did that clientele build? Um, you know, I, I sort of took the David Lilly models that to to balance uh, inventory. To balance cash flow and inventory, to to be very smart about how you buy, he always told me. He said, "You know, just sell what you think you can. You know, mm -hmm. buy what you think you can. Make commitments. You know, commit to a wine. Write about it. You know, write a tasting note. Push it. You know, create so not just like create it, but buzz. Don't just to like it. it. Yeah, like commit to it. Like you know, be all in. Yeah, and that's what I did. I've always been like that, but I really did that with Spain, and I think." Uh, Spain sort of is evolving was kind of evolving at the same time I was so sort of worked out for me in the sense that it became a niche for me were you able to find like things at different price points or well Spain is a well it's like artisanal wine in anywhere is a you know 15 to 30 dollar range you, there's a whole bunch of things to choose from well, I mean, were they readily apparent when you first took the job at wholesale that you could find them, or did you have to? No, no. I mean, there it was. It was hard for a while. It was hard for a while. It was really not until Jose Pastor, I would say, it was a tasting maybe three or four years ago. Four years ago, maybe his his book went from being okay, like a guy you need to think about, you know, uh -huh. uh, to pay attention to, to being like. The only wines I really wanted to think about outside of, you know, a few other things because he just became like right there in terms of finding the stuff that I was interested in. So did you travel with him a little bit? I I did. I I've gone to Spain twice with with Jose. And, um and what was that like? I mean, what is he doing to find these things? Well, I mean the first time I went I, I had been to Spain before, um with but, like Dimas on or Mm -hmm. Yep, mm -hmm. yep, yep. And, you know, the wineries 
with Jose, it was a little more personal in the sense that, I mean, it's just me and him and it's like four, three, four people in a car, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. driving around and the sellers were tiny. And it was just a very different scale and very personal, you know. Um, and that's what really what Jose's all about is this very personal approach. But he obviously liked you from the beginning because he put you on the splash page of his website at one point. It was like the famous CD. I, I wasn't ready for that. I don't know why he did <laughs> were that. Were people asking for autographs and stuff? Hey, man, I saw no, you No, people were getting a little suppliers were like, what's going on Right, here? right, right. You Who know? are you really working for and stuff? Yeah, yeah that kind of thing. And I, I certainly <laughs> didn't, did not ask for that. But uh, I, you know, I was also sort of taught to sort of, follow the importers that are really into the things that we're into, which, you mm-hmm. know, people that actually farm the gra- grapes that actually work organically, that actually ferment native with, with natural yeasts, and, and uh, you know, we're manipulating the wines, you know, to follow the people that are interested in that because it's important to, Im- you know, if you have a philosophy, you should embrace that and really hold to it, you know, and, and Jose's 100, he's 100% about that. So We're about it the same things. Like, hey, you have two of those wines in your book, but it was like that's the book, and for we me, speak for the me. same language. Oh, speak the same language, a hundred percent. And we both just like love love Cru Beaujolais and and you know uh, Loire wines, and you know Jose and I drink the same wines. We drink the same Spanish wines. We speak the same language. But it it seems like what. His wines that he picks share with some of those wines from the Loire and maybe Beaujolais. That there's a freshness when they taste. They taste. They don't taste like worked and heavy. They taste kind of fresh and light and kind of high tone, vibrant. That- yeah, 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 yeah. That's that is that is the the palette of the book. I mean, wines that are just always have an intrigue, intriguing aromas, and are are juicy and drinkable. Um, Jose loves to say about wines like I can't drink that. I cannot drink that. It's you know for him it's very about imp- somebody else's wine. <laughs> yeah, about other wines, you know, yeah. uh focusing on the back palate, how the wine finishes. Like does it finish with a cleansing acid quality is very important. You know, the wine doesn't get cut off by extraction or by, you know, over manipulation that the wine finishes with a clean flavor, you know, f- clean taste, lingering minerality, fruit. Like, that's sort of how I describe. So, but back to that question about how you go about business when you get there. How are you finding the things? How is Jose finding the things when he shows up in Spain? Well, I mean, he finds wine in a lot of different ways. But I know that for two or three years there, he was traveling his tail off in Spain and uh, in the Canary Islands, uh, uh, he's knocking on doors, going to uh, wine shops, talking to the people, get, leaving there with a case of wine, tasting, you know, just digging. So not looking at the publications and seeing who's been written up, but rather no hitting the streets a little bit? Yeah, he, he has no interest in finding the guy that's already discovered. There's no interest in that. You know, it's it's like somebody falls out of, a producer falls out of a book. He's not there to like scoop him up and he does not chasing point scores. Our wines aren't scored any longer, you know, so. Because you don't submit samples. We don't submit samples. Uh, It's. What what was going on economically at Spain? I mean, we hear a lot now how it's in the tank. I mean, what what was happening kind of earlier? What's, what's been the story? What's been the history? Well, um. Sort of what partially what draws me to Spain is is the history. Um, the, when I was a young, sort of very political, 20, 21 year old, I was I was sort of interested in the Spanish Civil War, uh-huh. and I think I've always been scared of fascism and sort of like where those ideas come from and how the Franco the, thing, the Franco thing, yeah. Um, so. You know, Spain had Spain had some some big problems. They had Floxer a little bit later than everybody else, uh, and then the double whammy was civil war. And on top of that, the the wrong guys won. 
Yeah. You know, and Franco was despite Hemingway, right? Despite Orwell, Hemingway, all the smartest people in the world couldn't save. Actually, the smartest people in the world didn't back Spain up, and that's probably why they didn't win. Um, but uh, so Franco in power for forty years. I mean, you only have three wines that are allowed to exist uh, in in Spain, really: uh, Sherry, Rioja. And and Vega Sicilia. So the already established names before that, people that already had some capital, and you know, it's a hard it's a hard time for everybody. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But you know, those regions really survived um, and and managed to thrive to some extent um, under Franco. But you know, in the rest of Spain, you were encouraged to tear up your native grapes and plant Palomino and Garnacha Tinterera. You know, because his idea was that Spain should be a great bulk wine com- country. Oh, okay. You know. So the history of Spain became that you had the farmers, the bodega or the co-op, and an enologist, somebody who trained locally or trained in Bordeaux or, you know, who who can make the wine. And it was a it's a you know, it's a fairly predictable model, you know, it works kind of. Um You think wines were being made specifically for a purpose like someone went in to make the wine with an idea of what they wanted to come out of it already well bulk wine it's not bulk wine doesn't taste like much yeah you know but certainly larger bodegas uh are like that you know bodegas the bordeaux model became hugely influential in spain um so it it's my opinion that 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 there's a strong disconnect there from the land in the sense that there's all these different terroirs in Spain. Spain's a big, disparate country. It's not, it's not like, you can't say Spanish wine. And when you say Spanish wine, you usually mean that big oaky Monastrell, Garnacha, Tempranillo that you find, you know, with a brand slapped on it, you know, in every other wine store, you know, for $10, you know. So, but yes, they make wine in Asturias. They make wine in Galicia. They make Garnacha in Grados outside of Madrid that, you know, and there, and the Canary Islands, they've had wine there for hundreds of years, you know, that has been completely ignored. So, you know, you have all these different microclimates and regions that have been largely ignored because when Spain, Franco died and the rise of uh, sort of the EU and they became part of the EU and sort of Parker was sort of, you know, also on the rise at the same time. You had this like these these different elements sort of coming together. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. Pescara was big at the time, one of the first modern Spanish wines. And I think I don't know which vintage, but Parker like was one of the first people to get all over that wine. Yeah, Janice and, got like hundred points at one point, I think. Yeah, sure. Super high at least. Yeah. But I mean the what was the economy like? It was kind of pumping at that time, or no? The economy was was in a lot of turmoil, um, and I think you know, Spaniards will look for the look for some security, you know, and um, you know, there were a lot of wineries that came up after the EU. There became more prosperity. There was a lot of funds that funneled from the EU into Spain to build wineries to modernize. This was very very important. That Spain modernized the their bodegas because you know their pe- people remember like the oxidized wines of the past and this and that and there's just at, at a certain point there's just no place for that any longer you know um, for the so the old fashioned wines of Spain and uh, you know hundred points man do you think that producers were chasing points to, try oh, to absolutely pay off the mortgage on the Oh, modernization. Heck yeah, man. There was a certain point where if your pre-rock got 98, 99 points, you sold out instantly. I mean, imagine that. Going from nothing to, to being not known at all to international recognition, just blowing through expensive wine. Expensive wine. You know, that's, that's going to like, you know, be really influential. But you were telling me the other day that there's wineries in Rioja and the Priorat that are just sitting empty now. Well, you know, there's that's true. I mean, the people are had people having a hard time selling their wine. There's too many, too many wineries making 
you know, ubiquitous wines. Everybody's chasing the same point score, the same styles. And I, I find I'm being overly generalistic, you know, and people beef with that statement. But certainly there is a huge thing that we must make powerful wines that will score well that that uh, we can sell internationally. And do you think that powerful wines from known Grey Fridays all kind of head to the same flavor profile in terms of the glass, so it's easy to kind of get bored th- if there's a lot of them? Or I, I would, I would think so. I mean, there's not, you know, you have to really dig into those wines to find nuance, you know, in terms. Uh, uh, so, but that's also an expensive style to make because you got to pay for all that new oak and you got to do the low yields, green yeah, harvest all the time. Exactly, and uh, you know, I f- personally, I find many of those wines to be very undrinkable. Um, but they love them in Spain. They love them in Spain. And what was Jose's reaction? Obviously, you're not Jose, but you watched him. What was his reaction to all this history in Spain? Because he is himself Spanish, I believe. Correct. Yeah, he's from Valencia. Uh, he's not as political or historically minded as I am. You know, I'm, that's more my angle. But uh, Jose thinks it's very, very important that 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 conception of modern Spanish wine kind of go away, uh-huh. you know, that the future of Spain is in the vineyards and respect for the land and uh, trying to show more of that in the wine um, and less wine making. So once like a country kind of makes it onto the international wine stage, once people are like, hey, you know, Spain can make good wine, whether it be in a modern style, mm-hmm. usually it is mm-hmm. in a modern style, because I f- feel like this happened in Italy too. Then do people kind of go like, oh, well, what else is Spain making? If I liked this big name, if this is getting a lot of acclaim, I wonder what else is in the country that I might give a chance to. And then it kind of progresses to... Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, the the big names in importation in Spain, Jorge Ordonez, Eric Solomon, these guys paved the way for us in many ways because Spanish wine didn't make it on the shelves, you know, 30 years ago. So, yes, that those... those those big flavor bomb modern wines definitely paved the way for Spain to be more in the conversation at least. But getting people to change their tastes is very, very difficult. I mean, when you have a monolithic wine, you know, and then you, you show them something delicate and nuanced and with acidity and... It's ballerina versus bulldozer, is that what you're saying? <laughs> uh, yeah, something like that. Now, here's what I find interesting. You guys have a lot of reds, which makes sense because it's Spain. And mm-hmm. There's a lot of reds. Do you have a few whites? I don't see any sherry in the book. Or at least maybe I'm missing it at the at the what is probably the height of sherry's popularity, mm-hmm. at least in New York. Uh, why might that be? Well, uh, Jose Jose used to actually represent two very good bodegas: uh, Heredero's de Arguezo as and Perez Barquero. Okay. So uh, San Lucar and then Montilla Morales. But, uh, you know, Jose sort of, uh, he, once he gets an idea in his mind, it's, you know, he goes for that. And what inspires him is the concept of the vigneron in Spain, the, the, the guy that gets his, you know, hands in the dirt. Uh, has, there's a Valencian slang called yaurador, uh, is, is the word, a, a person of the, of the soil. And, you know, a lot of sherry... Although I think there's great wines, many, many great wines in sherry, and I think Jose would agree. But for him, the wines are a little bit too manipulated, and there's a disconnect between vineyard work to the bodega in the sense that much of the wine is fermented at a co-op. It's acidified. It's clarified. It's it's fortified. You know, all these different – the wines are – are you know there's not a there's not a lot of a connection to the vineyard and i think that's that's for for jose that's the most important thing so it, for him it didn't make sense to continue with sherry so does sherry in a way kind of not pass the burgundian litmus test for jose uh that well, idea of one man one parcel it's just you know for him it's he's he's about the romance of wine you know uh-huh. i think and for him, sherry is not romantic. Is that a powerful narrative in terms of sales, or is that more? <laughs> I mean, people want sherry now, but it's still. I mean, I think it remains to be seen how much wine is actually selling. I mean, the sherry. buzzword. Yeah, sure. Yeah. 
like how much it actually sells through from the shop or restaurant once they buy it. Yeah, I mean, I did okay. I did okay, but you know, I I had a f- a decent sized section at, at Chamber Street, but it's not like I mean, and then things sold. Right, they sell, but it's not a profitable. It wasn't a profitable thing for the wine shop. Well, it's something that you might have four ounces of a day and drink over a week, right? Mm -hmm. From a 750, you don't necessarily need to be going back to the shop every day to get a new bottle, right? Right. Whereas with red, you might just have that with dinner. Yeah, but Fino Manzanilla, you just got to just drink that. Just drink it. (laughs) (laughs) But you like sherry. I mean, you turned me on to equipment of Vazos. Yeah, I I traveled there. It was the first first trip to Spain I... I took by myself. So I visited um, El Maestro Sierra and Dago La Gitana. And certainly I do feel romantic about those wines. I, I like the place. I like the history. I, li- I, like, I like it. So in terms of the book, though, some of the places that you guys are working with in, in particular, there's Galicia, there's mm-hmm. the Canary Islands. Mm-hmm. Why don't we hear a little bit about some of these areas that maybe people don't know about? Well, I haven't been to the Canary Islands. Um, I have sold the wines quite a bit. Um, but Galicia, certainly for me, is uh, one of my favorite places in Spain um, and certainly holds the most potential, I think. Uh, well, not the most, but f- for me, just places that I've been in Spain has the most potential to produce wines that I really, really love. Um, you know, um, Galicia has been largely ignored by the rest of Spain. Even you know Franco, who's from Galicia, basically persecuted his own people. Uh huh. Um, you know, a lot of people emigrated uh, from Galicia. It was that used to be that there were more w- wolves wandering the wa- the the uh, the countryside than there were people there. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, people left. You know, um, and the people that stayed were you know, very agrarian people. There are really cool cities there: um, Coruña, Ribadavia, uh, uh, Pontevedra, places like that, where you can go to a tapas bar and get just insane seafood. Tapas, like, not topless. Right, okay. tapas. Just making sure. Tapas, because they say you know Spanish women. No, <laughs> no. Uh, it's. You know, it's a misty green land. It's very green there. Everything grows there. Uh, you know, each family has some vines. They have a pig. They have some chickens, rabbits. Uh, you know, it's a very agrarian place. Still 50, 40, 50% of the people live in the countryside, which is very unique. You can't say that about many, very many places anymore. Um, so there's there's a strong connection to the land there, and and especially Ribera Sacra is just like for me one of the most beautiful places uh, for Mencia, which is probably my favorite grape in Spain. And, um, Prior to recently, how much of that wine was made for export? None, very little. So you basically- Jose was the first person to to import Ribera Sacra, and that was you know seventy years ago. So, and there was only one, and then a few more came into the market. Um, but that that region's in that region's in transition in the sense that most of the people farming there and making the wines are are over the age of fifty, fifty, sixty years old. So we don't know what's going to happen. Are there young people interested in moving back? Or uh, that's uh, our producer. You know, he he's a young guy. He's the youngest guy making wine in the DO, and he's pushing 40. So um, at what point did uh, Jose decide to take you from traveling buddy to salesman? Like, at what point did you join on with the crew? Uh, it was This was in October. In October. And, and what is it that you, you rock out for the company? I'm the national sales manager. What's the reception been like on the street? Uh, you know, I... I've been I've been out in the street, but I sort of came in a little bit late in the game. You know, middle of October, people sort of have got their programs together for the fourth quarter. Oh, I see. Um, but I've I've done some traveling, and it's been great. 
It's been great. I mean, you know, you go to markets where people are like, I've never tasted a wine like this before in my life. Uh-huh. You know, especially the Canary Island wines. Um, and then they taste the whole lineup and they're like, they see that there's, I think, good quality and a sensibility to all of the wines. And sometimes that people get blown away that they get, I don't know which one to pick, you know. I mean, that's kind of a good problem to have. But um, uh, no, it's been, the reception's been fantastic. What kind of food does this kind of wine work with well, often? Oh, simple foods, simple foods, chorizos, uh, sausages and simple meats like braised meats, uh, pimenton, you know, anything with, with the Spanish pimenton is, is, is great, especially with Galician wines. Those wines are made for smoky uh, paprika, you know, I like to pair the a lot of our wines with like New Mexican food and like I I can actually want foods that I drink a beer with I can actually drink my wines with because they have enough flavor and they they can handle a lot thrown so tacos and salsa might be or even no? yeah sure you sure can, you can yeah, do yeah, quesadillas yeah. Albarino with uh, fish tacos is fantastic I mean you know um, all kinds of all kinds of things but I like simple simple foods you know I've I've never been to one of those like three three star Spanish restaurants like, and had sort of avant garde. Right. I'd love to do that. I mean, like to the, see some of our wines paired with like you know, Alta Cocina or whatever it is, but um, that would be really interesting. So I mean, you said that in some parts of Spain, the future for the wine production is a little uncertain in terms of handover, what happens next in a few, few years. But where do you think the future is in the market in the United States uh, for Spanish red wine in general? Well, if we do our job, uh, it'll be for lighter wines. Uh, um, but I would say that I know in New York that there are certain DOs spending a lot of money here to keep customers or to get new customers and that's because their wineries are having a hard time selling wine is that the government uh helped yeah like government yeah. funds going it's, to promotion it's a little irritating because to know just... yeah because you have 25 30 percent unemployment in places and they're spending money on on promoting wine production which you know i don't know how much these these organizations you know really move the market uh-huh. You know, in fact, I know most buyers don't like going to these tastings. I mean, it's like 150 different wine, you know, 250 different wines in the room, all these wines that, you know, don't have importation yet. And it, I don't know. I don't, I don't see how that's going to improve the the future of Priorat or Roberto del Duero. For me, the, those are wine regions that have the potential to make really great wines, and there was a reason why people were doing that there first. But certainly, there's an identity crisis going on. Uh, there's too many wineries, and they're having a hard time selling wine. And uh, I attribute that more to to uh, more to uh, how they work the vineyards and uh, how they make the wine versus the region or the grape, uh, you know. I mean, Roberto del Duero, before Vagsilia and, and, and Pescara and all that sort of thing, people made wines that were rosés, essentially. They call them Vito Colorete, where they mixed Albio, which is a native grape to the region, not allowed to be in the DO. They used to mix white wine to give a little backbone, a little more acidity to the wines and to make the wine a little bit lighter. Why isn't that allowed? I mean... You know, it's you know, it's like that in Chianti as well. There's a lot of talk. No, we must promote Sangiovese or we must promote Tempranillo. And that's pretty problematic, I think. Like that guys can't make lighter handed wines because the DO says so. So you're saying yeah. if they looked at it as a wine issue instead of a branding issue, they might have more success in the market? Yeah, you need distinctive wines. Distinctive wines are what drive markets. Chris Barnes of Jose Pastor Selections. He's selling some distinctive Spanish reds. Give him a call. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Levy. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. 
Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.